And we are here to help you over the hump on this Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. Happy you could join us. Uh, we're getting ready for the Salvation Army Bed and Bread Truck uh, Radiothon on Friday. And uh, Jamie will be suitably attired. She's got her new vest. Yes, so I have a new yep. vest. The team's got their uniforms. And I was able to go on the bread truck which uh, is, last week, which is, it is enlightening. Amazing. It is. So, it is. Yeah. Rewarding. Very, cause. very humbling. And the gratitude that's in, in those, those faces really motivates Overwhelming. you. And so we're looking forward to that on Friday. Uh, but today is Wednesday. And uh, Jake Sullivan yesterday promising that in response to the death of Alexei Navalny, that there will be broad sanctions and what he calls a substantial package of sanctions hitting Russia's uh, power base in a number of different ways. We'll see what happens. The problem is, is that China, Iran, Turkey, Kazakhstan, they all turn around and give them loopholes and help them. <laughs> yeah. And until we start punishing them, them, right, this is going to be uh, kind of an exercise in futility, perhaps, but it's a, it's a good gesture. Uh, Donald Trump in his town hall yesterday did acknowledge uh, Alexei Navalny, called him a brave man, and then turned himself into Alexei Navalny, saying that it's happening here in America. Meantime, yet another American now in the clutches of Vladimir Putin's regime. Yes, this is a crazy story. We're talking about a ballerina who has dual citizenship with the United States and Russia arrested for raising funds to support Ukraine in its defense against the Kremlin's invasion. Her name is Senya Karolina. She's 33 years old. She became a U.S. citizen in 2021. Um, Since 2022, however, she's been, quote, this is according to Russia, involved in providing financial assistance to a foreign state and activities directed against the security of our country. And I read another article that she gave $51. 50 bucks. Yeah. To a charity supporting Ukraine. And uh, now she's in jail. Wow. And she could be there till March 30th and beyond. And she joins Evan Gershkovitz, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Wheeling, Paul Wall Wheeling. Street mm-hmm. Journal, of course, former Marine there. She just, you know, is a, a ballerina. Yeah. And um, taken who, who into custody. Who thought she was doing a good thing? I think it was. I, th- I think she thought it was humanitarian relief. I don't think it was right. to be arming uh, right. Ukraine or exactly. arming yeah. them. And With it, 50 and bucks? Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is crazy. This is why this is not. That's 20,000 rubles, by the way, because of the sanctions. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We wish. Yeah. We right. wish. I, I just. Meanwhile, Saturday is the second anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine. Yeah. And um, interesting thing, you know, th- th- you've, we've been hearing some Republicans, Rand Paul notably, dumping on the Ukraine aid. Uh, American Enterprise has an interesting article saying, uh, look, folks, that money that we're spending on arms stays here because it goes to American defense contractors and to replenish the arms that we have. We're giving them our stuff, and then we're buying more from defense contractors. So the idea that we're sending money over there or that we're putting, you know, Ukraine first, America last, as they say, Mm -hmm. really economically doesn't tell the full story. Interesting article and a different uh, perspective on that. This drive-by shooting is so disturbing, Lloyd, with this 11-year-old girl fighting for her life. Yeah, it is. Uh, Yesterday morning, we told you about that 11-year-old, now identified as Lamara Glenn, who was critically injured in that drive-by shooting on Pennsylvania Street on Detroit's east side. Lamara was sleeping on her aunt's couch when 23 bullets tore through the residence, one striking her in the head. Now, she's been staying there to attend a better school. 
Police have taken four people into custody, ages 18 to 23, in connection with the shooting. The incident is linked to a car theft ring responsible for multiple thefts, including two at Bob Maxey Ford dealership. The stolen cars were used in Lamar's shooting and a separate murder. Detroit Police Chief James White. When you are shooting 11-year-old little girls in their home uh, where they should have some degree of safety, that's a problem not only for the police department, that's a problem for our community. It is still unclear why the home was targeted, but White confirmed it may be gang-related. Police are looking for a fifth person in connection with the shooting of Lamara, as well as members of this car theft ring. In total, 20 cars have been stolen by the ring of car thieves. That's according to DPD. And they're using them in crimes. Meantime, under the heading of what the heck is going on in our world, we've got a couple that are driving a Mercedes-Benz that almost ran over a waitress because they were trying to dine and dash. Yeah, that's uh, a couple described as white in their mid to late 50s, left El Camino Restaurant in Kego Harbor in Oakland County without paying their full bill, which sparked a confrontation with their server. The server, you know, ran after them, tried to catch them to get that unpaid balance taken care of. The couple laughed and tried to drive away. The server stood in front of the car only to be struck and run over by the couple, uh, leaving her with some serious injuries to her legs. The suspects were driving a Mercedes-Benz C-Class. They fled the scene. Police are actively searching for them. Fortunately, the server is expected to recover. Anybody with information urged to call Kegel Harbor. They, they've got a partial plate, and it's DY9003. So you got to... Be- you got to believe there's not that many C classes out there. There you go with a DY, right? That's right. So we'll uh, we'll hope that they can get to the. What a thoughtless, unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> just when you thought you heard it all. Yeah, <laughs> and I. What, what was the tab? Fifty bucks? Oh, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's, so, unbelievable. So that's what yeah. I said. Sometimes punishment in kind, I think, would be a better thing. <laughs> okay, your punishment is you get to stand in front of your own C class. Uh, Eye for an eye situation. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, about, yeah. I'm, I'm there. Um, meantime, uh, Nikki Haley coming to town. She's going to be here Sunday and Monday. She's got a uh, an event in Troy on Sunday and then a, a midday event over in Grand Rapids on Monday. She is in it to, to stay. She said it She yesterday. says, you know, uh, no matter what happens in South Carolina on Saturday, I am in it through Super Tuesday. And obviously there there's plenty of folks willing to bankroll that. Yeah. Um, meantime... Joe Biden's got $130 million in his war chest. Uh, Republicans haven't yet filed, but as of their last filing, they only had $8 million. Mm. So there's a, there's a big war chest and financial problem there. We know that Donald Trump has been uh, successful at fundraising, but he's also spent $50 million of what he's raised on his own legal bills. Legal and bill. those, mm-hmm. those bills are only going to escalate with yeah. all these appeals and everything else that's happening. You haven't even gotten to the expensive and part And there's yet. interest on his judgment. Well, yeah. yeah, there's interest on his judgment, which takes it to about $450 million. Plus, he has to put up escrow to mount the appeal. Right. And and this, we, we you know, we got into this with a little bit with Matthew Schneider yesterday. Yes, they've slammed the door on using New York banks to borrow money for that escrow. But the other thing is, other banks, I mean, even Deutsche Bank, which has done a lot of business with Donald Trump, they still answer to shareholders. And I heard a guy say yesterday, um, you're going to have a tough time saying that Donald Trump is a good risk right now. So he may find himself really in, in some severe difficulty in terms of raising money to do that. Uh, with Nikki Haley coming here, however, the uh, new Suffolk poll, USA Today, coming out showing she has 35 percent of the vote in her own home state. Donald Trump has 63 percent. And when you dig deeper into those numbers, 
Amongst Republicans, she trails 72 to 25. She leads with independents 53 to 46, which suggests she would do pretty well in the general, mm-hmm. but she's going to have a devil of a time getting through the primaries. And speaking of primaries, Gail and I voted yesterday with the early voting. It was okay. Fast. It was hugely convenient, and I think we were number voters seven and eight in four days of early voting. Not That's in one day, in four days. In four days. They had six people vote there before we came in, and and that means that the average number per day is two voters per day. There are three people manning the polling place. <laughs> uh, statewide, it's 18 thousand plus people that have voted or not including yesterday's totals but that's from the secretary of state but that's against more than 700,000 people that have voted by absentee and when i broke it down of all the people that have voted early thus far only 2.5 percent have voted in person early so i know it's a primary i know that we would probably do better in the general mm-hmm. but this is a huge amount of expense for these municipalities townships and and, and counties to mount this for, for what, 2.5% of the voters right. yeah. at this point? I mean, it, it may get up to 5% by the time we're, th- we're all through the early voting period. It is showing people are doing it early. I still just go on the day of, but... Yeah, that wasn't yeah. an option for us because we're going to be... Uh, Gail's going to be out of town at least, and so I went with her. Uh, but, you know, it, it's just, it begs the question. Yes, we asked to do this. Voters passed it, but it's, a t- it's expensive and... yeah. Uh, too few people. We got to get ready too because it, it'll probably, like you said, it will probably be more people in November. So this is kind of like a. It's a, a run, t- a, it's a good test run. Test but run, but it's kind of kind of expensive though. At least for me, disappointing because yeah. I, I I had hoped that the absentee voters would shift to early voting because at least it gives the impression of being more secure. You mm-hmm. can see your vote wasn't a spoiled ballot. That's right, which was nice yesterday. Um, we'll uh, get to more headlines when we come back. Uh, going to be talking about a United Nations Security Council vote that went through. Uh, it, they, we had been hearing that the U.S. was going to support a partial ceasefire in Gaza. It didn't turn out that way. So what happened? We'll find out from our Fox News correspondent as we get you ready for Wednesday here on AM 760 WJR. As anticipated, the United States has vetoed a resolution at the United Nations calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. That was the Algerian resolution, but they say they have a a competing resolution as they have grown increasingly critical of Israel's conduct in Gaza, especially on this offensive in Rafah in southern Gaza. Let's bring in Jonathan Savage, Fox News radio correspondent and WJR contributor. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. It certainly feels like there's a shift uh, when it comes to the U.S. at the United Nations and a pending resolution, does it not? There is a shift. Uh, The U.S. is not quite on side with much of the rest of the world, uh, but it is moving farther and farther away from the Israeli position as well. Um, This resolution put forward by Algeria demanded an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. In fact, of the 15 members of the UN Security Council, 13 voted in favour. The UK abstained and only the United States voted against. And as a permanent member of the council, the US has a veto. That means the vote failed to pass. The US resolution, um, the rival resolution, calls on a uh, six-week ceasefire. Uh, It calls on um, a ceasefire that would allow and pressure Hamas into releasing hostages as part of a a longer-term pathway towards a permanent peace and in a measure which 
takes the U.S. certainly away from Israel's position, a commitment towards a two-state solution. How does the, the failure to pass the Arab Act uh, resolution, how does it affect the efforts to address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza? I think it does affect efforts. Um, it is seen as being um, potentially a catastrophic situation in Gaza. It's seen as absolutely a catastrophic situation so far that could and certainly uh, may only get worse. Um, Israel currently is planning a, um, a, a, a offensive in, in Rafah in southern Gaza um, and with one and a half million people sheltering there, there are enormous concerns about what that would mean for the civilian population. So the hope was by um, the Algerians and those who supported their resolution would be that this would put a stop to all that legally binding and prevent Israel from carrying out that assault. Jonathan Savage, the, uh, with the uh, Algerian resolution going down uh, with, with a U.S. veto, what are the prospects for the U.S. resolution and, and the, I guess the middle road six-week partial ceasefire? Yeah, I don't think the, the prospects are particularly high. Um, uh, if this is voted on at the UN Security Council, and there's no timetable even for that yet, you, you might expect other permanent members, Russia, China, to, to vote against and veto. I mean, we've had very sharp criticism from those countries for the U.S. for vetoing the Algerian resolution. Yeah. China saying it sent the wrong message and gave a green light to continued slaughter. But the fact that Biden's ambassador is even floating this six-week alternative tells you something about the pressure he's under politically. It probably does, yes. Um, it, it tells you something about, about the pressure he's under internally and externally. Um, the fact is that the U.S. didn't simply say no, no ceasefire, allow Israel to do what it wants. tells you um, that the, the mood has certainly shifted since the start of this war. And, and inside the White House, whether that's based on President Biden and his team's own assessment or affected by the pressure from the outside um, to, to move away from fully supporting Israel. Um, I think that that's a, a point for discussion. John Kirby was saying yesterday that they weren't able to support the resolution because it would put sensitive negotiations in peril. They're saying they're still trying to broker a deal between Israel and Hamas to get the hostages out. Do you have any updates on, on this possible deal? Yeah, this deal has been on the table for some weeks now. It was put forward to Hamas. Uh, Hamas came back with their own counter proposals. Now, um, the U.S. Uh, admits that uh, Hamas's uh, conditions, Hamas's counter proposal, uh, is obviously completely unacceptable to Israel. It has a number of conditions that Israel simply could not accept, including allowing uh, Hamas to continue in the removal of all uh, Israeli troops. Um, so it, does, it doesn't appear as though these negotiations are going particularly well, but there's probably um, a feeling within the U.S. government that this is the only um, the only route that they, they can travel on at this moment. Uh, Jonathan, the Navalny death in, in Russia and U.S. now saying they're going to uh, uh, put sanctions against Russia uh, this coming Friday. Uh, why would these what what sanctions could they be and why would these, uh, you know, be more help more than the others? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, the UK ambassador to the United States was uh, being interviewed by uh, Neil Cavuto uh, on Our World this week. Uh, and she was saying that, you know, people think these sanctions don't do any good, um, but they do um, degrade Russia's ability to prosecute its war in Ukraine. They make it harder 
for Russia to do that, and they make it harder for Vladimir Putin to uh, spend money on what he wants to spend money on. Also make it harder for Vladimir Putin to travel and go anywhere he wants to go, as well as senior members of his administration. Um, I think we'll have to wait and see exactly what uh, will come of these mm-hmm. of these uh, new sanctions later this week. Um, but there will, of course, be a lot of scepticism that they will make any difference because we have two years of sanctions uh, on Russia. Its economy is, is stumbling along, but it's, it's doing better than most people expected. And it's still able to put severe pressure on Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, this high-profile story of an American ballerina being detained in Russia. Yes, uh, this is something which is obviously of a great concern. Um, the detention of a, a dual citizen, Kesnia Karolina, uh, State Department, saying that they are aware of the case. She is accused of um, working to assist Ukraine. Um, and, uh, you know, the State Department say that they are very concerned. They, they, they urge U.S. citizens not to travel to Russia, that it's a dangerous place for U.S. citizens to be. Uh, and they're urging Russia uh, to release uh, all U.S. citizens that they consider to be unjustly detained. Well, Jonathan Savage, thank you for keeping us up to date on world events. Fox News Radio correspondent and WJR contributor. We appreciate it. Thank you. One Coming other- up, something very Interesting. One, one other, just a footnote to that. Oh. Right now, the, 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 there's a 60 buck per barrel cap on Russian oil. You know how much it costs for them to produce? 20 bucks. They're making 150% profit on a capped price. <laughs> so if they want to do something in, in, with these sanctions, that's right. How about lowering yes. that cap? And then we heard from Peter Meyer yesterday. He says, Let, let's flood them with American liquefied natural gas. Let's send a lot of that over to Europe. That'll kick him right in the slats. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we Sorry. coming up, we have swing voters. These people could decide the election, and they have some interesting point of views. Oh, are they hot? <laughs> and the things they say about Joe Biden uh, would make what's left of his hair curl. <laughs> That's next. Independence and swing voters determine elections. That is a hard and fast rule in politics. If you ignore them, you do so at your own peril, because the swing voters that we're going to focus on for the next couple of minutes... Gave Donald Trump the White House in 2016. They were among the 14,000 people that were his margin of victory. And then they turned around in 2020 and they voted for Joe Biden. They were part of the 154,000 people that were the margin of victory for him. Well, how do they feel about 2024 and this likely rematch between these two? Remember here, they voted for Joe Biden in 2020. They have incredible buyer's remorse. And it, and I think there are some really interesting takeaways. Let's start with the good news for Joe Biden. None were upset that the special counsel declined to charge him. They thought that was good. They didn't think that that was a, a major offense. None see Biden as a threat to democracy, but half of the 14 in the in the focus group said they did. How many in the focus group? 14 in the focus okay. group. Um, eight uh, independents. Yeah, eight independents. Uh, the rest identify as Republicans. But again... All voted for Donald Trump in 16 and then switched over to Biden in 20. They were asked, who is physically and mentally ready? And and they had some very, very harsh opinions on what they perceived to be Joe Biden's frailty. He goes totally off topic of what he, the topic he was talking about. He hesitates and then he re- repeats himself over and over. Seems like he's at a loss for words or he forgets what he's actually speaking about and uh, gets things confused. 
between people who he's trying to talk about or situations he's trying to explain, um, whether the people that he's talking about are dead. And now, you know, the, the, the Rich Thau is the guy that moderates this kind of pushback. And he says, well, Donald Trump has made, you know, he called Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi. He mixes Biden, Biden up with Obama. And they were like, no, no, this is it's much worse with Joe Biden. Those perceptions matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one that you think is the hoot is the babysitter question. They, he, so and Rich, Rich comes up with these questions that he, that he thinks can get to the heart of the matter, and I think he's pretty good at this. And he asked them, and I thought of you when he asked this yeah. question. He said, okay, you got a five-year-old daughter, you're going out to dinner with your wife. you got to leave your child, and you've only got two options for oh, a babysitter. Boy. One's Donald Trump, and the, <laughs> the other is Joe Biden. And... Uh, I don't think either passed my test That's for leaving her. Yeah. I, for you, <laughs> I, I know. You, yeah. I'm staying home. Yeah. If those are my two choices, <laughs> I'm staying home. Only five picked Biden. Nine picked Trump. And here's why. Well, he wouldn't fall over and crush the kid. Uh, he wouldn't be sniffing him, getting, I don't know, that's just totally creepy. I think he'd be a little more uh, aware of what's going on in, in the house. Cognitively. Well, at least I know he would know what to do with her if she fell down or got hurt. Uh, she, he'd be able to point her in the right direction if she needed to call nine one one or something. Well, I know she wouldn't. He wouldn't be stroking her hair all night. Biden. I mean, he can hardly stand up on his own. I, I can't imagine him chasing a five year old around. These are people that voted for Joe Biden just yeah. three years ago. Some of that I don't think is a good criticism. No, it's. I it's, mean, and it's it's, yeah. it's it's really it's a little ridiculous. Really, yeah. you can say it's but ridiculous. You can they say can it's have harsh. their opinions of course, and they are voting. Of course, are, yeah. I mean, it shows you the trouble the White House and the Biden campaign has with rehabilitating an image, image because they are they have such harsh impressions. Um, they were asked, you know, who would you support in a head-to-head race? Uh, Ten said that they would back Trump, uh, and seven of those said that they would take him, even if there was a criminal conviction. Now, that's buyers of remorse for real, for real, <laughs> right there. Again, um, and you know, you may say, "Well, how do you how do you justify that?" There's something going on. They're afraid of him being in office and the economy was doing great. I've lost complete faith in the judicial system. Uh, I think it's a witch hunt. And after seeing what Biden's done in the last four years, um, I think anybody that votes for him, I'm sorry, but they're basically just as off their rocker as he is. I just feel, you know, economy was great. Everything was great. I mean, when Trump was in office. So I don't think I can handle another four years of Biden. There were some more moderate voices in there but there's you know they they're they're, they're thinking was well that depends on what the criminal thing was because they do if you look at it as a witch hunt if you think his opponents are making it up then everything's forgivable right and from we, that point of view yeah right, yeah right and that's i mean that's how um what they are looking at that the way our judicial system is being you know whether it's the stormy daniels thing i think has really colored uh, the impressions of a lot of people. what about the introduction of third party candidates so that's really, really interesting because yeah, it's, we talk about we no talk labels about all the time. All the time. Yeah. What, as harsh as they are on Joe Biden, 
they really don't want to rematch with Trump either. That has been with a lot of the focus groups with swing voters, no matter what state Rich has visited. Do other candidates get uh, some some pull with the swing voters? Robert Kennedy Jr. So if, if you've got, if 10 are willing to vote for Trump, Five of them, when you introduce Robert Kennedy Jr., Uh Liz Cheney, Jill Stein, and I think Cornell Cornell West, West. Mm -hmm. when you introduce them, five defect from Trump and go to Bobby Kennedy. Oh, so a third party might hinder Trump. Third party, it it looks like, at least, again, with independent voters, Mm -hmm. with, with swing voters, would harm him or one would leave Joe Biden and go to either, I think Jill Stein got one, Liz Cheney uh got one it, it, the the other thing um they they were asked is when we when you see joe biden uh what what emotions does he elicit from you i feel like pity most of the time i see him to be honest i would say sad i would say concern i would say sorry too um not agitated uh, I'd say anxious, or it gives me anxiety just by watching them. Hopeless. Worried. Worried also. Disappointed. Disgusted. Worried. Worried. You know, some pretty human things yeah. there. They they feel badly for him, but it makes them anxious. It makes them worried. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of them watch him when he comes on television and he's talking. They They're waiting. Like for something for that to, word, you know what something. word he's searching yes. for, and yeah. So can I say there was one, and and Nick just whispered in my ear on this, and he's right. I've watched enough of these engages things enough. Sometimes Rich will tell you he gets a clunker in there. He picks someone that says they voted for Biden. I, there, there was one woman in there, the one that Who's has been the disgusted, very, the yeah. disgusted one. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I have a very hard time believing Me she too. ever voted for Joe Biden. Me too. Um, so you can kind of modify this, and that's why this is not scientific. But it is important. And one of the things that I found really illuminating this is how they view the economy. Um, and they were asked, look, if you talk to economists, inflation is retreating. Unemployment is down. The market is in record territory. So what's with your perceptions on that? I think inflation, uh, they're not, they're not, they don't have a control on inflation. I think the stock market is only, that can only hold its weight for so long uh, with what's going on globally. Um, you know, we, we are only a couple steps away from completely going into a, a deep recession. These folks are really well, pessimistic. And here's the other thing. When it comes to inflation, they just don't believe the numbers. And they don't believe them because the way inflation is taken, you compare it month to month and from this year to last year, and you mm-hmm. say, well, it was only up this little bit. They aren't concerned about what happened in the last month. They are concerned about what has happened to them for the past two years. And they're not over it yet. I think they're out of touch with the average middle class person. You know, the stock market, yes, that's performing well because of inflation, because people with money are going to invest now. And they're going to get a larger return on their investment because of the interest rates. However, the average middle-class person who goes to work every day and has to go to the grocery store, as Adele said, and pay all those other bills, we're seeing less. Yeah, so they're saying the way you report it means nothing to me. 
That yeah. is a very poignant statement. It is. Yeah. Her name's Yvette. She's an African-American voter who voted for Trump in 16, Biden in 20. And she, I think she, she spoke for a lot of voters. That said, mm-hmm. Yeah, we understand how the economists do this, but that's not our reality. Our reality is we've been paying more for two years now, and we still haven't. And, we have and you may on, not yeah. have stocks and investments. Right, exactly. You're just going to the grocery store, and all of That's that it. is way more. And if yeah. you do have them, you can't touch them. You can't spend them. No. And you've got them in, most likely, maybe you've got them in a pension fund through work, because you've got them indirectly. Mm-hmm. So some really interesting, especially it shows why Bidenomics, you think you can rehabilitate that? The White House is going to try. These are really locked in perceptions. But it's good to hear this, people. though, and know what swing voters uh, are thinking, and just, you know, just know what they're thinking. I have, I've, I've been working with Engages for the past five years. I have found this more illuminating than mm-hmm. a mountain of pundits because it's the people. It's the people speaking. Yeah. Uh, when we come back, um, Salvation Army, we've got a big day coming up on Friday. We're going to tell you why this will be the most deserving uh, of, of your attention and your uh, charitable endeavors and why this is a worthy cause to support. That's coming up next on JR Morning at 649. For those of us here at AM 760, I got to tell you, Friday is going to be the most rewarding and uh, heartwarming day of the year for us. Uh, That is the day that we set aside. We join forces with our old friend Dick Purton and and others at the Salvation Army and raise money for the Bed and Bread Club and uh, the Radiothon will be kicking off, uh, with, I believe, with Mike Parsons bright and early at five o'clock in the morning on Friday and running up uh, through, I think, uh, seven o'clock in the evening. And you, Metro Detroit, have been so generous and you understand how important this is. But to remind all of us, we bring in Lieutenant Colonel Steve Merritt, who is the Great Lakes Divisional Manager of the Salvation Army. Uh, Colonel, good morning. Well, good morning. How are you doing, guy? We're we're great. We're excited to to kick this off on Friday. It's going to be our first as a team, mm-hmm. and, our first uh, ever. Yeah, and um, and all of us have spent uh, time at uh, one time or another on the truck. And we, but take us to the front lines here. Tell me who the the recipients who who line up outside the, these trucks on a daily basis. Who they are? Yeah, yeah. As you've just been uh, talking about economics, I mean everyone. Uh, trying to make uh, your dollar stretch between uh, paychecks. We're speaking with the bed and bread. I mean, this specifically are individuals that are on the street and, uh, you know, living uh, on the street, finding a safe place at the best that they can, uh, looking for food. Uh, the bed and bread truck, Salvation Army, comes out every day of the year, uh, serving hot meals, serving uh prepared uh, sandwiches to those individuals. So, um, again, uh, 365 days a year, the bed and bread trucks are rolling across uh, Metro Detroit and uh, meeting the need that uh, everybody's aware of. And uh, Salvation Army, again, with wonderful partnerships like uh, 760 WJR for uh, meeting that need. Colonel, I I have uh, written on the bed and bread truck as well, and the people who come uh to you to receive their sandwich and 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 their drink uh hot chocolate or whatever they're they're so appreciative colonel they're so appreciative yeah. and it, it's 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 just a you know i w- i would advise anyone who has the chance to do it to do because it's a humbling experience and uh i just the, the people are just so very appreciative 
Yeah, you're correct. Uh, it is a humbling experience. Uh, these are individuals that are no different uh, than you and I. They find themselves uh, down and out, uh, loss of job, you know, things to have spiraled, spiraled out of control. Uh, but they really are uh, people just like you and I. They are, you are uh, hit it on the head on the nail. They are so appreciative uh, when they come to the uh, uh bed and bread truck, uh, receiving what's been prepared for them, asking uh, if they can take some for their kids, maybe their child's at home, if I could just have something extra to take home with them. Uh, very polite, always uh, appreciative, and we're just happy that we're able to do this. And I, when I went on the bed and bread truck, which was a couple weeks ago, there were people lining up wearing their uniforms of work. So they're working, at least some of them, and they can't make ends meet. And this lunch was very helpful to them. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful point. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, there's no discrimination. The truck arrives. Uh, there are people that know it's going to be there. It's the same route every day that these trucks come to, same stop. So people are waiting. Uh, anybody can buy uh, something to eat at that moment, they can stop and uh, grab it from the Salvation Army. I there's uh, there are a number of people that I remember from my my visits with uh, on the streets with this. And my first one was with Gene Taylor, I think, 20 years ago. Uh, God rest his soul, yeah. uh, who was, you know, Dick Purton's producer for mm-hmm. so many years and mm-hmm. also a good friend. Um, but it, it, there was a lady that came out and she was uh, this was just a couple of years ago after I got here to J.R. And she came out in a wheelchair. She wheeled oh. herself out to the truck and I asked her, you know, how important is this to you? She said, well, you know, I can't stand at my stove anymore. Mm. Oh, wow. And, and so I, this is really important because I, I can get up maybe for a little while and, and fix mm-hmm. something for myself, but mm-hmm. I'm very limited. And this means I get a lunch and I don't have to stand up. I don't have yeah, to that's... drag myself out of my wheelchair. I thought, mm-hmm. now, boy. Yeah, that's who, who that's I want to. So when when we go in on Friday, I'm going to be thinking about her because she's the one I want to make sure that truck's still there for her. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. That's a yeah, that's a, a heartwarming uh, story right there. I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, meeting a need in our community. Some things, uh, basic necessities, uh, many take for granted. And then uh, when you experience that, you realize uh you know, just food, uh, a sandwich, a cup of soup uh, really makes an impact in a life. Salvation Army's ministry, we hope it's uh, not only for a season, but we can make a relationship. We can uh, help individuals and uh, help them eternally. And, Colonel, besides the uh, the, the meals, uh, a lot of times there are hats and gloves and socks and personal supplies that are distributed as well. Yeah, that's correct. Those uh, That's another separate vehicle that comes out on the same route. So we often have those items on our bed and bread truck also, uh, hygiene items. Uh, those come out uh, to the community, you know, toothbrushes, uh, soap, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, those are, we collect those items. Those are a good way for the community to be involved with the Salvation Army also. Uh, and we get them out to where the need is. Uh, we're going to find out a lot more and, and bring it to the public on Friday, but there are shelters, there's a women's shelter, there's all kinds of things that this your organization does that is so worthy of donations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the Salvation Army, you think of uh, often of thrift stories, you think of, uh, of course, we've just come out of our annual Red Kettle campaign with the bells ringing mm-hmm. on the street, all of those dollars again collected our uh, for use right here in our city, uh, for where the need is greatest, 
and uh, we'll be able to tell that story on uh, Friday, and we're looking forward to it. It's well, a wonderful uh, radio talk. One of the things that's often overlooked is, uh, you know, we don't judge uh, folks that come to these trucks, but we do know some of them come there because they have problems with substances or mm-hmm. alcohol mm-hmm. or there have been other issues in their life. Um, this is a gateway for them to get help with the problems that put them in the in the straits that they are in. And that's important, too, is that this is a touch point for the Salvation Army to do long-term fixes. Yes, that's correct. You know, this, uh, yeah, this is... Uh, something that uh is tangible we see uh you're out of work uh you're hungry uh, we can feed you we can meet that immediate need but uh we're interested in the person in the individual in the family and uh, we have wraparound services caseworkers that can get involved in your life and uh the goal is to help lift you up and to get you back on a firm foundation so that you can uh, uh be back in the community uh, contributing and uh someday possibly supporting uh, groups like the Salvation Army to help others. Colonel, we look forward to seeing you on Friday. Take care. Yes, looking forward to it. Thank you. It was just a couple of weeks ago we told you about the Elon Musk startup Neuralink had successfully implanted its first implant into a human patient, into their brain. Yesterday, Elon Musk reported that that patient can now control a mouse, a cursor on a computer screen, with their brain. They are paralyzed in every other way. Wow. But they can make that mouse essentially move on the screen just through brain impulses alone. Game changer. Game changer. And um, he said, you know, they're they're trying to get as many button presses as possible from mm-hmm. this patient. That they're really putting this patient. They said the patient has no side effects, no ill effects from the implant. So now think if you can, through electronic impulses from your brain, control something like that. What if you could hook it up to artificial legs, right? With with, with motors attached that could move, you could restore some function and mobility to people who are paralyzed. Yeah, that's amazing. I think down the road that's it's it's going to happen. Can you imagine? I, I mean, there are things that scare the heck out of me that we're right. doing now with technology that we used to only see in the movies. Yeah. Right. But I mean, that's one of those things where you just go and I've I've got too many friends that have mobility issues. You think about just, you know, it's it would kind of be like a pacemaker for your for your brain, brain. in terms of restoring physical motion. And um, they say, you know, they're a long way from making this marketable. They're a long way from, and you have to put the implant apparently just, it's ever so precise. You got to get it in just the right spot. But um, and, and kudos to the guy who decided to yeah. to do this. Yeah. Because the this pa- is going to further. Patient A. Yeah. It's yeah. going to further it. You bless, know. and I, I don't know if man or woman, but right. bless bless their heart to be i mean they're they're a pioneer of a different sort right they didn't go to the moon but they're going to place they're going to take us to places that are maybe even more relevant yes so uh pretty incredible also on the technology front because it does impact and it's something that would it would have impacted you directly a major uh, decision coming from a, a southern court about in vitro fertilization yeah i you know when you were talking about science science is wonderful science brings a lot of people children there's no one more pro-life than a, a couple going to IVF trying to have a family. 
and Alabama ruled frozen embryos are children. Raising questions now about fertility care in that state and if, you know, this would spread to other states. If you don't know, IVF takes eggs from the mom, fertilizes them, and makes embryos. And so then when there are a lot of embryos, you don't, you can't implant all of them. So there's storage of embryos. And in this particular case, there was a situation where someone broke into the, to the place where the embryos were stored and they were dropped on the floor and destroyed. So this comes from a place where this couple or a couple couples were devastated. Those were their embryos and they were looking to have a child. But now this case is putting everybody into question because there are people in Alabama who have, you know, embryos stored and frozen. What are they supposed to do with them when they're abnormal and they would just lead to miscarriage and heartache and devastation? What are you supposed to do with those? Right. And so this is something under I the feel law, they say that life begins at conception and the conception yes. in this case begins in a Petri dish. Mm-hmm. Yes. And according to the Alabama Supreme Court, who, in an opinion, cited scripture and the fact that in that state they have a total abortion ban uh, as of June 2022. So this puts these families going through IVF in that state in peril. These embryos are minors. According, according to, well, to if this. they discard the embryos, it would label them murderers. Murderers, right. Uh, or who knows? And now the liability when it comes to these um, uh, fertility clinics, will they continue operating? Oh. I mean, probably no, no, not. No way. Because here, an innocent mistake can, can happen, right? Or in this case, someone with ill intent breaks in, mm-hmm. makes a mistake, kills an embryo. Well, now that clinic's liable. And when you have a case that was a lot like mine, when you don't know why things are going wrong, you try and create lots of embryos to find that one that is genetically, you know, perfect. Mm-hmm. And robust. Which is what happened for us. Yeah. And now I have a little daughter. But there are other embryos that were not. And so this is a lot of questions now. And like I said, what you go to these fertility doctors every week. The waiting rooms are filled, filled with people who want to have kids. And now this, I feel bad for them. I could start Pro-life. crying right now. Poor pro family. Yes. Yes. Um, and and so again, you can't take the politics out of it. You, you've got to wonder how much of this is about making a, a political statement as well. We've seen the politicization of our judiciary, and uh, and, and that's, that's, that's part of this as well. For but, people who want to become a family, so many. Well, and okay. if you're waiting now, right? If you're a fam- if you're an Alabama family waiting, or you're running a clinic, mm-hmm. what? It's, or in some of these, you read the articles, they're in the middle of it. Right. So they have embryos made. They don't know what they're going to do now. Yeah. Or what criminal liability they can face. Correct. Or right. civil liability. That's right. Correct. Uh, meantime, speaking of criminal liability, uh, Michigan's safe storage law getting its first major test. And Flint, the new safe storage firearms law already being applied following a tragic accident just one week after its implementation. Michael Talbert of Flint faces serious charges after his two-year-old accidentally shot herself. Prosecutor David Layton outlined the case, citing Tolbert's alleged failure to secure the firearm as required by the new law. When you are shooting 11-year-old little girls in their home uh, where they should have some degree of safety, that's a problem not only for the police department, that's a problem for our community. And that was Chief White uh, on the shooting of the 11-year-old. This is Prosecutor David Layton. The floor was directly next to a small toddler-sized folding chair. There were two firearms located on the bed in this front bedroom. One firearm was a revolver. The other was a semi-automatic pistol. Upon examining the firearms, both were unsecured 
and loaded with live ammunition. Now, the girl's accidental shooting happened on Valentine's Day. She shot herself in the head in a bedroom at the home. The victim, who shot herself through her right eye, remains in critical condition, from what I understand, and doctors say she will lose that eye. Now, David Layton, the prosecutor of Genesee County, will be joining us at 835 this morning to talk more about this case. It's crazy that it only took 24 hours 24 for the hours. first test case to pop up. But when you look at the level of irresponsibility with a very few, but it's still a significant number of firearms owners, mm-hmm. um, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. That, uh, it, that's a very interesting case and uh, look forward to exploring that further yes. with uh, Prosecutor Layton. Time for WJR's Business Beat, brought to you by Shelving.com. We rack your world. Let's check in with Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of Startup Nation. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. All great businesses start with someone's great idea, innovative thinking, or research that underpins a business opportunity. Here in the state of Michigan, like elsewhere, we know that beyond individuals starting businesses based on their great ideas, Business opportunities also emerge based on research going on at universities here in the state of Michigan. One such university really emerging as a leader now, it's Michigan State University, where research and development expenditures for 2023 was $844 million. That's an increase of $84 million over 2022, $750 million. Now, Doug Gage, Vice President for Research and Innovation at MSU, is quoted in D-Business as saying, The research enterprise at MSU is growing because of the long-term sustained investments we have made in areas of strength, support of ongoing initiatives, and enhanced efforts to capture emerging areas of discovery. Now, according to data recently reported for the 2023 National Science Foundation Higher Education Research and Development Survey, research expenditures from federal sources made the largest gain totaling 435 million dollars that's an increase of 54 million or 14 percent year over year from last year and this additional funding is being spent on plant and agricultural sciences water mobility material science education even nuclear physics and all of this additional research and development spending can lead to greater business formation around the ideas that result from that spending. And, of course, those businesses that get formed from the innovation fueled by this additional R&D spending result in businesses that fuel local economies, state economies, even national economies, ranging from increased employment to luring venture capital into the state. So this additional R&D spending is a real positive for the state of Michigan. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, the source for everything you need to start and grow your own business. And that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. Yesterday, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, which has a 6-3 conservative majority, rejected an appeal from the Trump attorneys who tried to overturn the election uh, by challenging results in Michigan. And uh, they've been ordered to pay $150,000 in sanctions as part of what have been deemed frivolous lawsuits against the city of Detroit and others. And they went to the Supreme Court to try to get that overturned. And the Supreme Court said, uh, you're not going to get any relief here. So those judgments will stand. Uh, Lynn Wood was one of those attorneys and um, uh, Powell, uh, Sidney Powell was one of the others. And they were the ones that you know, claim to have these, uh, you know, these challenges and we've got a hundred affidavits and we're going to submit them to the, the court. Well, and when they got there, they actually didn't ever submit the affidavits. They didn't back up their case. And as a result, they cast a lot of clouds over the process. 
but then didn't prove their case. Well, they're going to be called into account for that and uh, will be forced to pay some sanctions. And Christina Caramo, um, the lawsuit uh, that attempts to oust her as uh, chair of the Michigan Republican Party can go forward. We didn't get a judgment yesterday that would have cleared this mess up, Mm -hmm. but that lawsuit will go forward. We'll be talking with Christina Caramo uh, coming up at 735. Meantime, we have some new suspects and new newly charged people in, in Kansas City, and they're not juveniles. No, these are different people. These are two adults have been arrested in connection with that Kansas City Super Bowl parade shooting. Dominic Miller and Lindell Mays each face charges of second-degree murder, two counts of armed criminal action, and unlawful use of a weapon. This is according to the Jackson County Prosecutor. Because, as we know now, that Lisa Lopez Galvin was allegedly fatally shot by a bullet from Miller's gun. The prosecutor says it appears that Mays was in this verbal argument at the parade with someone he had no prior history with. It just becomes a scuffle. That argument escalates. Then Mays pulls out his handgun and almost immediately others pull out their firearms, including Miller. Mays said he fired two shots and said other people started shooting after he did. Miller said after he heard gunshots, saw a man shooting at him, he returned fire, according to the probable cause. And he estimates he fired four or five shots. And so that one of his bullets allegedly is the one who struck the DJ, this mother of two, and killed her. When police asked Mays why he advanced on the other group in the first place, he replied, quote, stupid man, just pulled a gun out and started shooting. I shouldn't have done that. Just being stupid. Wow. Well... (laughs) Your actions have yes. caused a ripple effect for a lot of kids who were there. Mm-hmm. This mother, these two kids who don't have a mother anymore, just because, you know, you being stupid. stupid. Yeah. 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 There, people say there's an epidemic of gun violence. There's an epidemic of stupid. It is. There's an epidemic of irresponsible. Well, and stupid getting back people to the with guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, they were talking about, too, the juveniles who are in custody, and how come we don't know who they are? How come their names are not haven't well, been released? In the, because they're juveniles, right. and that's the law in, in Missouri. It's in the law in, in, in many places, in many states yeah. that they, you know, if it's a juvenile, they don't release the name. So that's why. And in fact, they were outed online, and they got the wrong people. <laughs> you know, so they, <laughs> See, yes. again, you got these armchair detectives, and mm-hmm. again, there's no shortage of fools, unfortunately. And you, you go online, and it's a cesspool. Uh, interesting story from Axios that uh, questioning whether or not appraisers, home appraisers, are biased. And uh, in Detroit, Michigan, when you compare a home owned by a black person to homes owned by white people, and they've tried to adjust for where they are and mm-hmm. everything like that, they found there's a 45% difference in the appraisal based on the color of the skin of the owner. Uh, Axios uh, breaking this down, and there's some going to be some interesting, I think, fallout from that trying to address what may be a bias mm-hmm. why because most of the appraisers they say are white mm-hmm. and perhaps better diversity there may lead to more equitable uh appraisals uh which you know it's such a subjective thing with home appraising but yeah when you see that level of discrepancy especially in a, consistency in a area yeah, exactly in a specific in, area in, in a neighborhood yes uh then, then you wonder about bias and we're seeing some of that in banking and yeah you know that, we know that there are folks, I think it was, is it 50% of Detroiters still don't have checking accounts mm-hmm. or something like that? Mm-hmm. Because they don't trust banks. And this history of, uh, of of a lack of confidence goes back 
generations. Yeah, there there have been some allegations of racial profiling against a local bank. This woman, she claims that she was denied cashing her settlement check multiple times while witnessing the bank easily process a similar transaction for a customer of a different skin color. Despite attempting to cash her legitimate check four times, it was eventually confiscated. Before resorting to legal action, her attorney decided to test the possibility of racial discrimination. These incidents occurred at the Comerica Bank branch on Adams Road and Walton Boulevard. The woman, Shanquise Jones, says she was embarrassed. And she said banking while black is a reality she never thought she'd experience. Her lawyer, Brandon McNeil, confirming that she followed all protocols but was still denied. To confirm their suspicions, McNeil conducted an experiment using a white customer who faced no issues cashing a similar check at the same branch. So, as you know, legal action is now underway. What protocols? You go in the bank with your check and you sign the back. Yeah. Those are the protocols. Sometimes you have to have an account with the bank. And she had to, you know, they put the thumbprint. She had to do the thumbprint. She did the thumbprint, all of that. We know there's fraud out there, and there are a lot of protocols to try to prevent more fraud. Mm -hmm. But when she jumps through every hoop, what are you doing? Yeah, four times. Yeah. They even told her that something was wrong with the check. You need to go get it reissued. She got it reissued. And And came back. And came back, and they still wouldn't do it. Yeah, and they wonder why people aren't beating down their door with deposits in some cases. (laughs) I guess we find out why. When we come back, uh, she is the embattled chair of the Michigan Republican Party, no longer recognized by the RNC. What's next for Christina Caramo and her battling of the lawsuit? That's next. A disappointing outcome for the Well, one of the chairs of the Michigan uh, Republican Party, Christina Caramo, she had gone to a Kent County judge hoping to get the lawsuit that attempts to oust her uh, kicked out of court. Um, She wasn't successful. That lawsuit will go forward. So what's next? And at what point do you say for the good of the party uh, you withdraw? We bring in Christina Caramo herself to answer those and other questions. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. So the judge rejected your motion to dismiss. The RNC mm-hmm. has recognized the other chair, Peter Hoekstra. Donald Trump was effusive in his praise of Pete Hoekstra the other night. Uh, where does this leave you? You know, ultimately, it's not up to either of those parties. The majority of the state central committee supports me and wants me to remain as chair. That's what makes this whole situation such a travesty is that, you know, with all due respect to President Trump, who we adore, but this is not his decision. Um, the RNC has zero jurisdiction. And as a matter of fact, uh, Ronna McDaniel and the general counsel of the RNC, Michael Watley, are very dishonest because they told myself, our general counsel and executive director, that the RNC does not get involved in these matters or disputes. And the majority of the state central committee gathered and voted that the in small group of individuals who gathered at this illegitimate meeting to claim they removed me. They voted that their actions were not proper and voted to reaffirm me. So it's kind of at this point, it's moot. So we need to be focused on moving forward and saving the country instead of this power grab because they're unhappy with, because the powers that be are unhappy with the state central committee. In all honesty, Ms. Garamo, I mean, if you were to assemble those state committee people now, after Mr. Trump has endorsed Peter Hoekstra, The RNC has endorsed Peter Hoekstra. Do you still think you would have the majority? Oh, absolutely. We just had a meeting on Saturday. 
And how many? <laughs> how many? And then how many of of the state committee members were there? How many voted for you? Well, we have uh, fifty three of our actual voting members, and some people sent proxies. So that's still a majority because there's forty who wanted me gone. So again, we still continue mm. to enjoy the support of the majority of the elected voting members. Um, and what's unfortunate about the RNC? I mean, our secretary. Our treasurer often in affidavits regarding our, our policy chairs in affidavits regarding these individual actions, how it violates bylaws. And they completely ignored us. Um, they completely ignored our, our officers, uh, completely ignored the committee. And our committee members are very angry because they have a right to representation. Our precinct delegates and our committee members have a right to select their chair, not the RNC. That's not their role. And nothing in the RNC rules gives them authority to do that. So this is a complete violation of the bottom-up structure of this party where, you know, the political oligarchy has decided they don't want the direction that the political, I mean, our state committee wants. They're just going to come and coordinate this coup and just override us and bully us into submission, and the committee is not going to put up with it. This is not about me. This is about the will of the committee and the will of the delegates. That's what should be honored. Christina, as this continues to go on, you know, how does this help uh, the candidates that are running that, you know, and the fundraising and, and those types of things that, that go on? Well, it, it's harmful. That's why I've asked, uh, challenged uh, Mr. Hoekstra to stand before the committee at our March 2nd convention. There will be 2,000 delegates and let the delegates settle this dispute, even though, I mean, we have significant evidence of RNC coordination with these individuals in the effort to remove me. This is just all completely unethical. Uh, Mr. Hoekstra was using the Michigan Republican Party logo and sending out communication, and the money was actually going into a PAC, which is illegal. Uh, these people have just engaged in such egregious actions. But all that being said, um, I said he needs to be a mature adult. Uh, it is up to the delegates, not the RNC. Stand before the delegation, March 2nd, let them vote. If the, if the delegation votes, the 2,000 delegates who elected chair in the first place, if they vote that they want to move in a different direction with Mr. Hoekstra, I will honor that and step aside. But the same will work for him. If the delegation wants to vote that they want to continue with me as chair, then you need to step aside. Because to your point, this cannot continue. It's harmful for the party, and it's an embarrassment to the party. Uh, it, it gives the impression that all we do is fight each other and we don't know how to govern. And I love my party. Therefore, the proper thing to do is to stand before the committee and to stand before the 2,000 delegates and let them settle this matter because if Mr. Hoekstra thinks he's going to run a split party or I continue on with the majority of the committee, there's still going to be a significant group of people who feel frustrated and disenfranchised and, and it's just not good. So this is why this is the only solution. Uh, I know that you're on Twitter. You just tweeted yesterday what you just said, that you would prefer the delegates to make this decision on March 2nd. So if you're on Twitter, then you've seen all the jokes that are being tweeted about this party right now. Why not in the in the good of the party go to Mr. Hookstra and say, let's work together. I'll step down or or whatever and let's just move forward. Why should I, but here's my question. Why would the good of the party be me step down when the majority of the committee wants me to serve as chair? Again, this this this, this is the, the the problem in this whole situation is that uh, there was a, a shift, obviously, in the Michigan Republican Party when I was elected on February eighteenth. And that's because the precinct delegates are tired of the status quo of the Republican Party. We love our principles, but the tactics that the party has used for years have not been working in recent years because of a failure to see how the world has changed. We don't change our principles, but we have to change our tactics. And that's what the committee, the, the delegates want, and that's what the committee wants. The committee is pleased with the tactics that I have. 
the committee, we all, I work, the committee and I work together. So it's not as though, you know, in the years past when I served on the state committee with the chair and the committee over here, no, we all work together. And the committee enjoys that. So the committee wants the direction that I'm going in. So um, it would be inappropriate for Mr. Hoekstra just to step in and take over a committee where he's not wanted. Um, it's not his decision. And it's the reason he won't call a meeting with the committee because he knows the committee is completely up in arms about his antics, the majority at least. Well, he has already called a member of the a vote of the committee, and and he felt that his meeting was within the bylaws. So, does this basically now come down to a judge? And if the judge, do we know what the timeline is for the judge to make a decision on this? Did they, did they give you an indication in Kent County? Well, just a point of clarification, he he didn't call the meeting. My former co-chair is the, the one who organized okay. it. Just as a point of clarification for the audience, but um, there's there's a hearing today. Um, the judge will begin, begin hearing our arguments. To your point, as you mentioned in the introduction, the judge stated that um, he did not agree with our height manis claim because he felt as though this wasn't a political question. This was a question of whether the bylaws had been followed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he will begin hearing arguments from the plaintiffs uh, today and then from the defendants, which is us, tomorrow. Do you think this will be rectified before the March 2nd uh, caucus meetings? I mean, I, I hope so, um, but be that as it may, be that as it may, I still believe that it needs to be rectified on that day, and I, and I just believe, because the court case is going to continue on, because they're um, seeking injunctive relief, so this case is going to go on through the summer, So, I, and I don't think that that's good for the party. Therefore, the mm. best way to handle this is to let the delegates decide, because that's what's causing the division, um, more so than Mr. Hoekstra's and I's dispute is that the precinct delegates are very angry that the RNC felt that they had the right to step in and make a decision on who the mind got chair is. That's not their call. It's the delegates' call. And that's, that's ultimately the problem in our country from a bigger picture beyond the Michigan Republican Party or the RNC. The general consensus among the public is that their voice is being stifled, uh, that they have no choice in who actually makes decisions over their lives, that it's a top-down approach. And that's not what America is about. No, I, I, I appreciate that, that and the very the very grassroots movement in the party. And I can understand that you this the, your argument about bottom up does make sense. But then there's political reality and the, the mm-hmm. very strong grip that that former President Trump has on this party. And I do think that's changed the landscape. Uh, the facts will be addressed in court beginning today. And uh, we'll see what happens then. Christina Caramo, thank you so much for coming on and explaining yourself. Yes, thank you for having me. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day. You too as well. Thanks very much. Um, you know, facts are sovereign things, as they say, and, and they'll be weighing the facts about whether or not bylaws were followed um, here. But I got to tell you, she said that there are 117 state committee members. Mm-hmm. She said she had f- votes from 53. Well, that means she would have had this, some significant proxies to be able to declare that she had a majority. I'm a little dubious, given Mr. Trump's endorsements, whether that would shake out. If they held a vote today, whether it would be. And despite of the court, whatever the court rules, there's still going to be this kind of internal feud between, you know, parties and the Michigan GOP. How does that get? Well, my set? point was it, this has become a joke on social media. People are laughing at the party. Is there a way to just move forward without waiting for a judge, without just like work together? But apparently not. Well, in you know, in uh, maybe less passionate times, someone would say, look, you know what, for the good yeah. of the party, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm stepping away. I see the, the forces that are laid against me. And when Donald Trump is against me, uh, I know I've lost. You know, when you when you lose Trump, you've kind of 
you've kind of you yeah. kind of lost your uh, your currency. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll see where that judge takes it. But I mean, that's just the county. It's going to go to an appeal. Mm-hmm. I mean, exactly. we'll, we'll see if 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 they will accept the county's outcome. Uh, when we come back, Black Tech Saturdays. This is a movement to make sure that there's diversity within the tech sector. Uh, very important event coming up. We'll let you know about it coming up at seven forty nine. Black Tech Saturdays has been called a game-changing movement, which is making waves in Detroit's tech scene. Black Tech Saturdays has been making headlines for its efforts to bring diversity and inclusion to the technology industry. And now they're gearing up to host Deputy Secretary of Commerce Don Graves. This morning on the WJR Morning Live line is Johnny Tourange, who is founder of Black Tech Saturdays. Johnny, good morning. Good morning, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Tell us more about Black Tech Saturdays and a little bit about what's in store for this uh, visit from the Deputy Commerce Secretary uh, at New Lab at Michigan Central. Yeah. So uh, Black Tech Saturdays is a meetup for tech founders, tech talent, tech curious, people that kind of see it, touch it, feel it, learn it. Every week we either host a panel, a workshop, some type of training to figure out how to break into tech. We started... Last year is five people, and that was like April 29th. And I think last year we had over 5,000 people come out. We meet two, three Saturdays of the month, and it's really been a blessing to watch the growth. We just expanded to New York and Baltimore. Well, and so to, to have Black Tech Saturdays, was there a, a an issue with uh, blacks not being included in in, in technical in the technology industry? Yeah, yeah. Where it, so in the earliest version, it was really just a few of us tech founders helping each other, like, work on pitches, go after grants. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more we worked together, we realized all of us had similar stories, similar struggles. And we're like, I wonder if anybody else is running into this. And so we opened it up, and I think anyone experiencing some of the hurdles we were with, getting investors, getting your pitch decks together, trying to get a tech job, or even figuring out how do you upskill. As, all, as everything's changing in the economy, I think all of us are figuring out, like, what do I need to do? My job is changing. How do I break into that industry? What do I have to learn? So we just started coming together, like, make that easier. Um, the tech industry, I think 8% of the entire tech industry is black. So there's definitely a lot of room for growth, but it's very, very hard to break in. John, oh, sorry. Johnny, what's your background in tech? Yeah, so my background actually started in community organizing and politics. So I've always been the person playing with the tools, using the websites, trying to make it work for, like, communities, usually in organizations with a pretty cash fat. Um, my last role before I jumped fully into tech, I helped build a couple texting platforms, a couple tools to like really benefit union members. And when George Floyd happened, I was like, I've learned a lot. I feel like I can build something that can be much more helpful than what I'm doing right now. And so as I journeyed into tech, um, I started to catch some traction with some things. And then it wasn't until I got a really supportive community of people who were people of color who were in tech, who really started to help me like break in there more. So uh, there are some startups uh, with with uh, black founders and black entrepreneurs. Give them a little love. Tell us about them. Yeah, I'm always so fascinated one, at, at you know some the of the origin se- story. Yeah, yeah. And some of the sectors yeah. that they're and that they're exploring. Yeah. So I, if you don't know, we definitely have to talk about Just Air Solutions. They're a climate tech company. They measure air quality, so regular people can actually have it in their phones, see what's going on with the air, and tell if it's 
red, green, or orange in terms of how safe it is and what you need to do to mitigate it. Yeah, and this is uh, micro data, right? I mean, they're taking it down to like, the neighborhood level. Yeah, right? I think the county has yeah, a contract yeah. with them. Wayne County has a contract with them, I, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the founder over there is Darren Riley, and that contract was huge because that was something that we helped work to kind of push and get them there. And that's the kind of thing we do at Black Tech Saturday, kind of pushing people forward. Um, another founder, have you all heard of Charisma Youth with Guildform? I have not. No. Yeah. So did you see the movie Black Panther 2? Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. Her company, it's built here in Michigan. She actually uses AI to design jewelry. She designed all the jewelry for Black Panther. Oh, actually, wow. wasn't there a commercial with her in it? Probably, yeah. I think I saw a commercial. And I think I think our friend Christy McDonald did a big profile yes. on her yes. online. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And That's so exciting. Those are two people that I'm like, you have to shout out. And then Justin Turks with Logistics, he's a founder who has like a really awesome story because he won the first ever Black Ambition competition, which was a million dollar competition across the country. And to see a Detroit Black founder win that and just like what it's done to push his company up, I'm like, we're definitely making strides. And a part of what we really like to do at Black Tech Saturday is just help amplify the stories so everybody knows what's happening. And how does the Deputy Secretary of Commerce, Don Graves, play into this this morning? Yeah. So this morning we're excited because for him to come to Michigan and actually to set up to not only tour with Black Tech Saturdays, but we're sitting down. And so we have about a dozen companies, and we're going to have an intimate roundtable to talk about what's going on in tech, how can the Commerce Secretary, the Deputy Secretary, help us and pushing more opportunities for funding, getting traction, and just how they can be a partner. Um, so we're really honored that not only like he's coming, but for us to be a stop, um, they kind of adjusted the calendar to meet with us. So what was going to be like a meet and greet has turned into almost two hours to just really like have a deep dive and talk about solutions. Who can come and you have, do you have to register to be part of this? So this event is, um, it is an intimate conversation. So, um, it's already filled, but we're definitely going to be talking about more and the ask for him today is we want to bring him out to one of our Black Tech Saturdays on a Saturday because we usually have four or 500 people and I would love for this conversation to grow so we can have an open conversation on what are solutions and how can the United States government be an ally. And let me, I, I, I got to ask you about Michigan Central because uh, as you know, it's uh, uh, coming back to life and it, it looks good already. Yeah. And so talk about a little bit about that. We got about a minute left. Yeah. So Michigan Central is definitely the center of innovation for the state. It's been a big growing. I know we all saw the announcement. It is opening June 6, 2024, the big reopen, and it's been fascinating to watch. And I'll let you know, you can't wait to be in there because they restored that building to its original form. Mm, like wow. scrubbed it brick by brick. It's beautiful. Can't wait to see it. We and are looking forward to hopefully it. Hopefully Don Graves is going to go back to Washington and say, you won't believe right. what's happening yeah. in Detroit. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Johnny Tourange, founder of Black Tech Saturdays. We appreciate you being here this morning. Good luck t- today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. And uh, coming up, uh, we will have the latest stories that you want to know about here on JR Morning. Well, like you, uh, paid the cable bill the other day, and every time you kind of go, oh, <laughs> you know, there's a there's still sticker shock there, oh, right? Yeah. And then you add in all the streaming stuff on top of it, and I keep seeing more shows and more streaming services that I ought to be looking at, and you get recommendations from friends. You're going, oh, is there no end to it? Well, 
now in the sports world, some re- some real disruption here as this giant media uh, monster could be created with the, oh, I'm already getting, have I moved to the next segment? Yeah. <laughs> Did I just go full Joe Biden on yeah. you? Yeah. Okay. I, I, if you don't know, I just wrote him a note and showed it to him like, hello, uh, exclamation point. point. <laughs> <laughs> so as I was saying before I was interrupted by Jamie, we'll be doing that story coming up in our eight nineteen segment. <laughs> he was ready to get there, boy. No, was there. As you can see, I was kind of excited about yeah. it. So, I thought you were teasing the next segment. Yeah. Well, I That kind of was. I am now. Yeah. Thanks, oh, yeah. thanks to you. Um, <laughs> interesting, kind of a fun moment last night. We were getting together with some buddies, and one of them has a, a Mustang Mach-E loves this car and i mean he's got corvettes and he's a he's a car guy but he wasn't too too happy with the fact that ford has cut eight thousand dollars off the vehicle that he is now driving and it kind of gets to the heart of the fact that some of these cars that are american american made in quotes uh still don't qualify for the seventy five hundred dollar subsidies for evs and so that's why um uh ford is is cutting the price on them but an, another analysis came out. I love the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget because they are equal opportunity irritants to Republicans <laughs> and Democrats who want to say that they are budget conscious. When Joe Biden rolled out his Inflation Recovery Act, or in, they, they said, well, we've got all these green energy things in here, and the cost is going to be $400 billion. That's the subsidies, the, the solar panels, all this stuff. Turns out, according to the CFRB, it's going to be $870 billion. The whatever Joe Biden quoted and his administration quoted, it's going to be double because of the number of people who want to take up those subsidies. And the other thing that they didn't factor in when they came up with that, there's a cost to encouraging green energy. The loss in federal gas taxes, when you factor that in, well, then the cost balloons to $870 billion when you also consider lost revenue. So just a little something is the Biden administration is talking about dialing back its emissions mandates. Not maybe such a bad thing. It could actually reduce the deficit. So other than just the political pressure he's coming under from Donald Trump and unions, not a bad fiscal call either. We'll see where it goes. We shall. Um, I, I talked about this earlier in the show, the whole IVF uh, fertility uh, decision in Alabama and how that affects people going through that. And I it, it, I just get so worked up because it, it's a blessing for people who want to have a kid. It was a blessing for us. Right. Let's start at, at square one, which is basically an Alabama Supreme Court came out and said fertilized, frozen, fertilized frozen embryos that are either harmed or discarded the court now recognizes that as a human life. They're minors. Even though... Considered children under yes. state law. And this all came about because some frozen embryos were destroyed at a clinic in Alabama. And this case was brought by three couples. There was no intent there. It was an, it accident, was an accident that happened. And this was brought by three couples. This went all the way to the Alabama Supreme Court. And they cited an anti-abortion language in the Alabama Constitution then ruled that an 1872 state law allowing parents to sue over the death of a minor child applies to all unborn children regardless of their location. So, you know, I understand that thinking and that train of thought, but the impact on people going through fertility treatments 
is large because now maybe people in Alabama won't have a clinic to go to because mm-hmm. of the liability. Well, depending on how far they take it. I mean, at least in Alabama and perhaps beyond, depending on how many uh, states have that life begins at conception uh, definition, could kill IVF. Because what, what clinic is going to be able to assume the liability that if an embryo is destroyed because it is flawed, mm-hmm. and that's... That happens a lot. Yeah. You know, people are there because they've had multiple miscarriages in a lot of cases and you don't know why. So then when you go have this procedure, you create a lot of embryos. And what do you do with them if they're not viable? Right. And I just it just there's civil liability here. There's criminal liability here. And if this is allowed to stand, then it could spread to other states. Right. Where do childless couples go? Then now one you in can six say people you can adopt and but. affected by infertility. So this is a lot of people. Mm-hmm. The waiting rooms in the fertility clinics that I have been to filled with people who want to have kids. Right. And if this affects them and, and they're waiting for a child, it breaks my heart. And there are people that call themselves pro-family that will probably cheer this, but you're breaking the hearts of tons of families who want to have children of their own. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, yesterday uh, morning we uh, first told you about that 11-year-old uh, now identified as Lamara Glenn. She was critically injured in a drive-by shooting on Pennsylvania Street on Detroit's east side. She was sleeping on her aunt's couch. 23 bullets tore through the house, and one hit her in the head. She's been staying there to attend a better school. Police have taken four people into custody, ages 18 to 23, in connection with the shooting. Incident uh, linked to a car theft ring responsible for multiple thefts, including two at Bob Maxey Ford dealership, the stolen cards used in Lamar's shooting, and also in another murder that happened earlier this month. Detroit Police Chief James White. When you are shooting 11-year-old little girls in their home uh, where they should have some degree of safety, that's a problem not only for the police department, that's a problem for our community. Now, it's still unclear why the home was targeted, but White confirmed it could be gang-related. Police say uh, they're looking for a fifth person in connection with the shooting of Lamara, as well as other members of this car theft ring. In total, 20 cars have been stolen by the ring car thieves since this is going on. They've been trying to get this uh, these thieves uh, off the street for the last month or so, and then this kind of culminated with that shooting yesterday, and they really started wrapping them up. And, you know, this is one of those things where that we separate violent crime and property crime. This is a property crime that has Turned led to a violent, violent crime. crime. That's and right. You, there's this nexus, is, which is why you prosecute those just as vigorously as you prosecute violent crime. They're married. And we'll be talking to the prosecutor in uh, Genesee County coming up at uh, 835 about the first person charged under the safe storage firearms law. It took 24 hours and you got a person charged already because a two-year-old shot herself. Right, with a gun that was unsecured. Yeah. Uh, Cranes with an important story this morning. Ford Motor Company bringing back most of its salaried employees. They're basically formalizing the hybrid work model that they've already been using pretty much. But they said come March 1st, uh, while they haven't identified which employee groups are going to be coming back, they said by March 1st, most office-based Ford folks will be back with a hybrid work in, uh, arrangement three days a week at least. Um, it, we, we are going to say goodbye to when a, a member of the Lions secondary who had kind of a tough season. Yeah, Tracy Walker. Uh, I re- remember seeing this on the uh wires or what have you yesterday being like oh no he he was a great guy, guy yeah. in the locker room 
But, you know, Brad Holmes came out and said they're going to make some tough decisions. This is one of them. The Detroit Lions safety, Tracy Walker, um, not going to be here next year. Can, they think, released him. You think Cam Sutton's going to be next? I think Cam Sutton could be a number two. So they bring in someone else and Cam Sutton remains. So, okay. So we, we, he could be better in a number two role rather Correct. than number one. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Um, have you guys heard that there's been this very tumultuous thing going on in the cable TV industry and in, in the delivery of sports on streaming Should we talk about it in the next segment? Yeah, oh, we're gonna, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I just heard something about that. Yeah, <laughs> deja vu all over again. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be talking about that and how it could affect your bill, whether you stream sports or not. There's a lot of people that when they you know sign up for cable, they don't want sports, but they pay a pretty penny for it anyway because you can't go a la carte. All the changes that are happening that could affect your bill next on JR Morning as uh, we check in at 819. We all have plumbing issues, especially when it's an older home like mine. And I think the hardest thing is finding the right plumber who you can trust. Well, a couple weeks ago, I had Shelby Mechanical out to my house and there isn't a company I trust more after seeing what they did for us. The guy came in, he replaced the toilet, handled a couple of plumbing issues, some pipe issues we had in the basement, and he was great. He communicated what needed to be done. He noticed the toilet we bought because we didn't know, didn't have all the right materials. So he went to the store for us twice and made sure everything was installed properly. He cleaned everything up and he stayed all day and he was out and it was wonderful. I'd like to personally thank the team from Shelby Mechanical. Now, Shelby Mechanical is truly Metro Detroit's residential and commercial expert in plumbing, sewer or drain problems for reasonable price reasonable prices right now you can get a bradford white infinity series tankless water heater installed with zero interest for 12 months to get same day or next day plumbing service call shelby mechanical for your home or office call 586-726-9444 or visit shelbymechanical.net that's shelbymechanical.net for projects big and small you know who to call like i did shelby mechanical for all your plumbing needs it is an 800-pound streaming gorilla in the making. This merger between Disney, Warner Brothers, Discovery, and Fox to put a sports-oriented streaming service together. Um, and it is uh, causing a lot of disruption. As, you know, a lot of us as sports fans are looking at this saying, geez, I pay this cable bill so I can get SPN and mm-hmm. the broadcast. And then they put the they put the U of M game on Peacock. And what the heck is up with that? <laughs> right. All this disruption, where will it lead? Well, it's going to be even more disruptive. We bring in Tim Basinger, the media reporter for Axios and co-author of Media Deals Newsletter. Good morning, Tim. Hey, guys. How are you? So there's a group called Fubo, which is one of the bigger sports-oriented streaming services. They've got, what, what is it, an antitrust lawsuit saying that this just consolidates far too much media heft into one company? Yeah, they basically, yeah, they filed a lawsuit yesterday basically trying to stop this streaming service from ever happening. Um, yeah, they're basically, their their main argument is that this you know, streaming service, whatever you want to call it, kind of a skinny bundle of, you know, some of these sports-oriented networks, is it's something that Fubo TV and a lot of other distributors have honestly sought to create, is that they wanted the ability to offer, you know, their customers who just want all the sports networks, they wanted to be, a, they wanted the ability to offer that as like a bundle, like a kind of a small bundle to some of their customers, and they've been stopped at every time. 
from these same three companies that are now offering the exact kind of product that they wanted to offer for years. So they're kind of saying, you stole our idea? <laughs> that is um, the, the quote from David Gandler, the, you know, you know, Fubo's co-founder. He basically wanted to call him a sports cartel. And he said they blocked their playbook for many years, and now they are effectively stealing it for themselves. So how do you see the lawsuit impacting negotiations in the future and collaborations between these streaming services and, and these sports leagues and content providers? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's they've, they've kind of been contentious for a bit, I think, with the, you know, just the long-term decline of the traditional cable television bundle, you know, subscribers cutting the cord is kind of going to streaming. You have more, you know, more high-quality programming, you know, moving from linear television to streaming. And now with sports, the last, you know, 18 months, you've really seen kind of a massive push. I mean, you saw what happened when the NFL put a playoff game on Peacock and how it kind of enraged a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So what I think is happening is, is you're just seeing, you know, it's these talks have been contentious between distributors and programmers for a while. And a lot of it's because the business is changing. A lot of the business that these distributors are in is kind of, you know, fading. And so I think a lot of it is just sort of rethinking how these deals even work and, the short answer is what Disney and Warner Brothers and uh, Fox are doing with this, you know, planned streaming service is probably not going to help their relationship with any of these distributors. Yeah. So if I'm a consumer and I'm sitting out there and I'm saying, look, with this cable bill, I know that, you know, there's a pretty large percentage of that cable bill that goes to sports, which, you know, like mm-hmm. people, subscribers like my mother, they don't need that, but they can't mm-hmm. get an a la carte plan. What, if if this media giant is is made for sports streaming, what will that do as a sports fan? How much will that raise my bill? Because now I I, I still want ESPN, so I'm going to sign up for Comcast, but I'm going to have to go over here and geez, get Peacock. And... But is it even a given that this happens? Well, I guess that's the other question. I mean, that gets into the SEC yeah, right. and antitrust actions. But Tim, I mean, what what will this mean for the consumer? I think you know the. The positive way to look at it is that you have a lot of choice. I mean, the thing is, with this planned streaming service, you know, the reports are it might cost anywhere between $40 to $50 a month. It doesn't include Paramount. It doesn't include, you know, Comcast, which means no NBC. So there's two, you know, two of the other major sports networks are not part of this. So you would – so, the, I mean, the question with this service is really – and it's been asked since they kind of surprised announced this during Super Bowl week – is – you know, what's the market for this thing? Because, you know, I'm a huge sports fan, but I like all my sports networks. I have YouTube uh, uh, TV. I don't know if I would drop that to get this new thing and then get Paramount Plus on the side and then Peacock on the side. I don't think <laughs> right. it's that much cheaper, you know? So it's so the question is, they're pricing this in a way that would hopefully make them money. And they're trying to solve these issues that our people are cutting the cords or trying to fix sports rights are rising. You know, the NBA deal that's going to, you know, be made later this year, it's going to cost, you know, ESPN and Warner's, you know, renew. It's going to cost them more money. Um, so they're trying to find a way to make more money off of, you know, TV subscribers and doing it all these kind of different ways of different types of bundles. But I think with this, you know, the one main thing from a business perspective that's kind of working against this 
planned uh, streaming venture is just who is it really serving? You know, like it's, if you want to get all your sports, you're not really, I don't know if you're saving money by dropping your TV subscription and getting this and then all the other add-ons you have to get right. to make up for all the networks you're already getting. Mm-hmm. Right, because the biggest show on television is Sunday Night Football and that's NBC and that's not included here. So then if you're a really big sports fan, you want NBC, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's, so it's, 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 it's interesting that three rivals are kind of trying to work together. You know, it's very similar to what happened when Hulu first started. It was this kind of same idea. You had a bunch of media companies combining to put their, at that point, to put their broadcast TV shows on this streaming service. Um, but the governance issues and how these companies, how these companies work together, it, you know, it, it kind of ends up hampering, right. you know, Kind of real innovation with the business. That's why Hulu is now, you know, going to be wholly owned by Disney. Uh, really quickly, uh, Tim, thirteen uh, percent of subscribers here in the state of Michigan have cut the cord. Mm-hmm. By the way, that story came down yesterday. But the other one is Walmart is not only going to be a retailer of TVs; they're going to be making TVs. Yeah, they. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, that that's that's interesting because I think Walmart, I believe, had their like, you know, the same way that Best Buy does. They have their like house brand. Um, but you know, now they're obviously going to be much more, um, you know, focused on selling Vizios. Right. Vizio TVs. So, so very quickly, does that mean that I'm not going to be able to get HCL, Samsung, some of the other? I think they, you know, I think they still have to sell those because that was, you know, they run afoul of other antitrust and competitive issues. Okay. Um, but it, but it, they're obviously going to probably give you better deals on a Vizio TV. Good enough. It's called Media Deals. You'll find it on Axios. Tim Basinger, thank you. Just one day after the state's new law mandating safe storage of firearms went into effect, a tragic incident occurred. A two-year-old little girl in Flint accidentally shot herself in the head with her father's revolver. Now the father, a 44-year-old man from Flint, faces charges under this new law. And joining us on the JR Morning Live line with more is Genesee County Prosecutor David Layton. Prosecutor, good morning. Yeah, good morning to you as well. Thank you for having me on. First of all, let me ask, uh, do you know how the child is doing this morning? Uh, at last check, still critical. The bullet went through her right eye, came out the back of her skull. She's had some uh, brain bleed and issues mm. there. Uh, she remains critical, going to lose the right eye for sure, according to physicians. It's just a terrible, terrible tragedy. And, you know, the legislation prosecutor was aimed to keep kids safe from guns. And, and still, just a day after safe storage goes into effect, another child hurt by a gun. And is it about more education about the safe storage law? Or will you or will you just give people, you know, people will ignore it because they think, you know, it'll never happen to me. Uh, you know, my kids know better than to touch my guns. What What needs to happen? Well, I think education is a key point. It's it's much like seatbelts. I, re- I read this somewhere yesterday, and I agree that, that, you know, at first nobody was wearing their seatbelts. And then as, as word spread and it became a, an infraction if you didn't wear your seatbelt, people started wearing them. Now it's automatic. So I hope we get to the point in time where people with minor children in the home secure their guns safely so we can avoid these types of incidents. What charges is the father facing? So he's facing a litany of charges. Uh, the, the statutory violation of the 
safe storage of firearms is just one count. He actually has nine counts ranging from the most severe is child abuse in the first degree, which is a life felony, uh, all the way down to lying to a peace officer, which is a, a four-year felony. And he's got multiple felony firearm counts attached to each one, which is a mandatory two years consecutive to any other sentence he may receive from a judge upon conviction. But, you know, obviously he's innocent until proven guilty. That's my obligation to show evidence beyond a reasonable doubt of guilt. And then then we get to the sentencing. So it's interesting to to, uh, Lloyd's point about education. There's nothing like a high profile case to educate people that there is a new law here. We should point out the law doesn't mandate that you use safe storage, but it does set criminal penalties if you don't and a child is harmed, correct? Yeah, I mean, there is a provision in the law that if you don't do it and and the child just gets his hands on the gun, that that's a crime, too. Right. But really, I mean, where I'm looking at, and prosecutors have great discretion, I'm trying to stop kids from this exact type of incident where they shoot themselves or they shoot their siblings. I've had way too many cases in Genesee County like this, and I was shocked that the very next day, we had a case based on this law that just went into effect. I'm hoping this, this, this word gets out and we have less of these incidents because these are the kinds of things that even grizzled old prosecutors and detectives, this makes us kind of get numb and, and buckles us when we see yeah. the facts in cases like this. Well, any cop that's had to answer one of these things, and i got to tell you, any yeah. media person that's that true. has covered one of these things, yes. it, it rocks your world. Very quickly, though, I mean, we saw in the Crumbly case, Jennifer Crumbly testified that, well, we we did our best. We tried to hide the gun, and um, and that's what, you know, we're supposed to do. If this guy had tried to hide the gun from the child and the child still found it, would they still be uh, liable under the safe storage law? Well, under the law, you're supposed to store the firearm in a locked box or container, or you can put a gun lock on it if, it's, lock. if it's unloaded. Right. So you have two choices. But like I said, prosecutors have discretion. If somebody puts a gun up in the top of a closet and the only kid in the house is a two-year-old who's still crawling, I mean, to me, that's common sense, safe storage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it may not be precise as to the law, but that child's not going to get to that gun. Sir, speak to those who say this is an overreach and this is a penalty on, on gun owners who do the right thing. Yeah, um, you know, it's kind of like a balancing act, isn't it? We we, we, we want to have access to our weapons should there be an intruder in our home. Mm-hmm. But we have to balance that with the need to protect minor children in the home. And I think this is a, a fair balance. I think you can still get to your firearm if you need to. I think it protects children in the long run. And I think over time, statistics will bear that out. Prosecutor, did the father uh, of the child, did he have a previous criminal record? Uh, Yes, he's charged as an habitual offender fourth, which means the sentences can be enhanced. Uh, Under the Michigan Rules of Professional Responsibility, though, I'm not allowed to go into details about that. But we did charge him as an habitual offender so that's public record. And I ask that because many will say that the law will be adhered to by legal, responsible gun owners, but those who are criminals or felons uh, won't adhere to it, and these types of incidents will continue to happen. I don't think there's any doubt that 
we'll still have more incidents. But if we have fewer incidents, if we even save one life of a child, then mm-hmm. it's worth it. Yeah. Right. One life saved. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do think there's a question, though. You say you have charged him with a, a multiple number of offenses here. Did you go with involuntary manslaughter? Was that available to you as well? Well, the child's still alive. If the child well, that's dies, true. That's, yeah. that's true. So if the child dies, we will add we, a count. God forbid we don't want that. No, no, no. I, I made a giant leap there. The but what I'm getting to is, was, is the safe storage law really the best avenue to do this? Or did you already have enough tools in your toolbox? I don't think so because, you know, under involuntary manslaughter or even under the child abuse count that we did charge, we have to show that he knowingly or intentionally cause this serious injury mm-hmm. under the safe storage violation of firearms law the elements are much clearer to explain to a jury and they don't have to really use their discretion to decide if this was knowingly or intentionally they just have to decide well did he not store that gun according to this statute okay. which mm-hmm. says you got to do certain things so yeah. it's real clear cut and it gives us the additional tool Genesee County Prosecutor David Layton, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for giving us an update on this case. Thanks for having me on. And the uh, College Football Playoff Board of uh, Managers unanimously approving a model that will guarantee the five highest-ranked conference champions' inclusion in the expanded 12-team field this fall. We'll talk more about that with our senior, <laughs> maybe I should say it's softer, senior, sports analyst. Coming up at 849. And we've also got some tickets to give away to Tullymore, one of the finest golf resorts in the state of Michigan. Your chance to win next on JR Morning. Well, if you're stuck here in Michigan, it's still a little too cold to tee it up. But that doesn't mean we can't dream about the season, right? And the best place to do that is the Michigan Golf Show running March 8th through the 10th at uh, the Suburban Collection Show Place in Novi. And to wet your whistle, we've got something special. Tickets to play the Tullamore Resort. This is a stay-and-play package, a two-night stay for you and a guest. Uh, You get 18-hole rounds with a cart on both Tullamore and St. Ives. I can tell you, I I spent my summers up there. I love these golf courses, especially Tullamore. It is a special track. Be caller number nine right now at 1-800-859-0WJR, 1-800-859-0957. We've got four tickets to the Michigan Golf Show, and you'll qualify for that grand prize, the trip to the Tullymore Resort, that stay-and-play package, including St. Ives. So be caller number nine right now, 1-800-859-0WJR. Well, it took a while, months of delay, but the College Football Playoff Board of Managers unanimously approved this 5-7 model guaranteeing the five highest-ranked conference champions included in this expanded 12-team format. Let's bring in senior sports analyst Steve Courtney. Good morning, Steve. Hold on, Jamie Guy Lloyd. The golf conversation is warming my heart. I know. Can I win? <laughs> I know. You avoid where prohibited, WJR employees. <laughs> uh, good morning, everyone. This conversation brought to you by the hardworking men and women at Bill Brown Ford. Uh, how about the winged wheelers? Uh, they go two and two out west, but they have one two straight, and they're back on the home ice tomorrow night. My good friend Matt Garko and his team are stacking wins each and every day. Drive with the champions at Bill Brown Ford. Shop their TrueView inventory at BillBrownFord.com today. Yes, it is a done deal, as Jamie alluded to. The College Football Playoff Board of Managers 
approving the uh, model that will guarantee the five highest-ranked conference champions' inclusion in the expanded 12-team field. That's coming this fall. Now, there were delays uh, because, and this is sad, of the disappearing Pac-12. The decision was made just yesterday morning in a virtual meeting of the 10 FBS commissioners and, of course, the Notre Dame president, Reverend John Jenkins. The vote had to be unanimous for the 5-plus-7 format to be approved, and the Pac-12 had either previously abstained or asked for a delay as it worked on determining its future. And we know what that is to a degree. The Pac-12 and Mountain West have agreed to a temporary scheduling partnership in which Oregon State and Washington State, the two lone members left in the Pac-12, will play at least six Mountain West opponents in 2024. Now, in most years, the 5-plus-7 format will assure the conference champions from the SEC, Big Ten, Big 12, and ACC a spot in the playoff, along with the highest-ranked Group of Five conference champion. The CFP, by the way, intentionally won't refer to the Group of Five in its description of the format, though, because there is a chance that a champion from one of the Power Four conferences finish ranked below the top champion from the American Athletic Conference, Conference USA, Mountain West, Sunbelt, or Mid-American Conference. Now, the CFPA's, uh, the CFP's management committee, uh, which comprises the 10 FBS commissioners and Notre Dame Athletic Director Jack Swarbrick, they are meeting in Dallas today to continue working on the implementation of the 12-team playoff this fall. Uh, there is also going to be some uh, weighty conversation about other things. The top priority, according to multiple sources, is coming to an agreement on a new TV deal. But they will also continue to talk about access and revenue distribution. Of course they will. Uh, by the way, one change they are close to agreeing on, according to these sources, is eliminating the contracts the New Year's Six Bowls have with respective conferences in the new contract. The Sugar Bowl has a historical agreement with the SEC and Big 12, while the Rose Bowl, of course, has long been contractually tied to the Big 10 and Pac-12 and the Orange Bowl with the ACC, Big 10, and Notre Dame. So uh, we are going to have that expanded 12-team playoff uh, this fall. And, uh, hope, well, you know what, there's going to be some... Uh, some issues, I'm sure. Um, but uh, the question out loud is, uh, is this going to, in essence, bring a close to the traditional bowl season, which has been on life support for a while? Yeah. Yes, because the guys don't even play in the bowls. But Guy and I were talking about if you're the 12th seed, let's say, and you have a lot of games to play, will the guys play in those games? Or will they opt out? you could out. get hurt. Yeah. Well, I, I think once you become a playoff team, I think the chances of anybody opting out uh, would be uh, would be rather small because you're in, right? Uh, I think even at four teams, and we saw it just kind of catch fire with some of the lesser bowls, uh, is everybody opting out because why do you want to risk your NFL future to play in the Astro Blue Bonnet Bowl? <laughs> What's that, Mayo Bowl? But there's a mayo one. Well, the Pop-Tart Bowl, the Mayo Bowl, you know, uh, the Pool and Weed Eater Bowl. I mean, uh, it just goes on and on. But you know what? Uh, It's so sad uh, with what's going on with the Pac-12 because obviously uh, being in Big Ten country all my life, uh, that was it. 
right. uh, Big Ten, Pac-12, Rose, Rose Bowl, Bowl, that kind of thing. And, you know, to see the Pac-12 disappear um, is sad. I think uh, there was a lot of excitement about the bowl season back in the day. But everything has changed. And, you know, it's all about uh, who's going to face off for the championship. But I think, you know, if you qualify and you're one of the 12 teams, and, you know, we saw some issues with Florida State uh, on the outside looking in this year. Uh, chances are, you know, that's not going to go away. Uh, somebody is going to be on the outside looking in. Um, and is it going to stay at 12? How long before they just say, you know what, let's just make it 16. But right. now you're talking about college teams that are qualifying for this uh, 12-team playoff, playing up to 17 games in a season. And remember, it wasn't all that long ago the NCAA said there is no way we expand the regular season to 12 games. Right, because that's it will not good the... for the student. Yes. And well, now and watch what happens with the unionization movement, too. Now they've got, you know, a fertile field to plow here saying, well, you're adding all these games. Well, you know what? Northwestern uh, attempted to unionize Northwestern football. I think it was like five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Washington got involved and uh, everybody instructed him, okay, look, you go ahead and you unionize, but know this, uh, you do that, you will become employees of the university, which means you're going to be taxed, you're going to be responsible for your own health insurance, and uh, all of a sudden they said, no thanks. Oh, all right, well, <laughs> that being said, we'll just kind of keep it the way it is. So, um, interesting uh, what's going on. And, you know, can you imagine the amount with the expanded 12-team playoff, what the next TV contract's going to bring in? No, like what the total number will be? Oh, Lord. <laughs> I, I can't even, you know, venture a guess. going to be a lot of dough. Well, under this new format, the playoff will grant first-round buys to the four highest-ranked conference champions, while teams ranked 5 through 12 will meet at the home venue of the higher-ranked team. I think it's kind of exciting. You get a little bit of the whole, you know, basketball March Madness feel to it. So let's see what happens. Uh, Can't wait, to be honest with you. And uh, the way time goes, it'll be here before we know it. So, All right, Steve. And you know what else will be here? Golf. So I'll see you out on the links. Thank you, Steve. We appreciate it. I got to go. And speaking of that, congratulations to Susan in Macomb. Uh, she was our winner of the tickets, the four tickets, to see or to attend the Michigan Golf Show out at Suburban Collection beginning March 8th. And she qualifies to win the trip to Tullymore as well. We'll be giving that away again tomorrow when you join us again for JR Morning at 6 a.m. All talk is next.